This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Stephen Bradford Long, thank you so much for joining me here for one of these I Don't Believe in That God episodes. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for your hospitality. I'm going to be doing more of these listeners. I've done a handful of them in the past and kind of trying to get back into them. But if you haven't heard one, basically there are episodes I do with people to my right, and I usually call those worries about progressive Christianity, worries about deconstruction, stuff like that. And then I also like to do uh, conversations with people like to my what I would call theological left, essentially like beyond Christianity or beyond theism, generally atheists or something like that. And those I call I don't believe in that God. And towards the end, I love to kind of compare notes and see what we both don't believe in or what we might both believe in. There are always differences, of course, because I'm 
not an atheist, or in this case, I'm not a Satanist. So we will have differences, but it's always fun for me to kind of figure out what exactly those differences are. And I tend to be surprised by one or two items each time. That sounds beautiful. So, Stephen, because you are a Satanist, there we got to do a little bit of like setting the table here that we wouldn't have to do <laughs> if you were simply an atheistic former missionary, right? So I can think of kind of three categories of what people might think of as Satanism uh, and maybe a fourth, like a 1A that I will ask you about. So to start with, I think the kind of popular conception in conservative religious circles is that Satanists are people who essentially believe the biblical story about God and Satan. And for whatever reason, because they are evil, they choose Satan. Like they truly know better and they go, nope, I'm going to take the short term benefit of being, you know, I'm going to take the Robert Johnson at the Delta Crossroads deal. I'm going to sell my soul for worldly success. And I know I'm going to go to hell afterward. And, and hail Satan anyway. I would imagine that basically those people don't exist. Is that, is that true? They have existed in history, okay. but that is not what modern Satanism is. Right. That when you meet a Satanist in the wild, it will not be that. There have been weird historical accounts of, you know, there's documentation of people doing kind of what you described in exchange for wealth or power, attempt to, you know, attempts yeah. to find more security. But no, that so I won't say that it has never existed. It has, but it sure. is not sure. modern Satanism. From like a therapeutic psychological perspective, I would think that the only way someone would end up in that kind of a situation is if they were profoundly ill. Because if you believe like in some sense, the the basic or literal truth of the what the Bible has to say about God and Satan, like you, it's such a bad deal for you that it's yes. so irrational to take that deal um, that only the most sort of profoundly wounded or just got a bad hand dealt to them person would even identify as taking that path. But that's kind of the boogeyman. That's the sort of scariest yes. version of it. Okay. So then 1A is not that. I am familiar with, especially, for instance, in like the Scandinavian countries in uh, like adjacent to the black metal scene there. Um, But beyond just the sort of metal music scene, there are strands of neo-paganism that are anti-Christian in the way that many of us are anti-colonial, and sort of want to be aligned with the liberation of indigenous people against Christian fueled, depending on how you kind of think about colonialism and imperialism. Obviously, a lot of that work was baptized by the church. There is a refocus on Odin and Norse mythology, for instance, in some of those cultures. And it's a way of saying like, hey, you guys came in and made us Christian. We weren't Christian before. Now, that's not Satanism because it's kind of actually trying to go to something before God and Satan were the dominant theological, you know, sort of beings or concepts. Is there something akin to those neo-pagan sort of backlash movements that does identify in some way as Satanism or is that also kind of a separate thing? There is. Not for everyone in Satanism. And and it's important to 
contextualize what Satanism is, I think we can take a really broad definition of Satanism, which is it is the religious veneration for the symbol of Satan. That's it. That's kind of the highest level definition of Satanism. So there are a huge number of varieties under that umbrella. And there will be people who are drawn to the symbol of Satan or the person of Satan as a reaction against Christian indoctrination uh, or as an explicitly anti-Christian thing. That's not where I am. You know, I consider my Satanism post-Christian. I don't consider it anti-Christian. And I think that most, may I, I won't say most, but I, I would say many of my colleagues in the Satanic Temple are coming from the same place. You know, I know people in the temple who are coming from completely atheistic backgrounds, from completely non-religious or sometimes Jewish backgrounds or or background of Satanists is far more diverse than just religious trauma or just yeah. Christian trauma. Then the th- Second category, so it's one and one A. Now we've got two. And this is the Satanism that I think most people think of that have some sense of the facts in the last 100, 150 years or whatever in Western culture. And that's basically Levian Satanism. Anton LaVey, famous probably like in my world for being the guy that like Jimmy Page and some of the Black Sabbath guys were reading and as I understand Levian Satanism, correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen, it is essentially a kind of a Nietzschean, Machiavellian sort of will to power philosophy that all that stuff about morality and being responsible for helping the little guy like that is bullshit that, you know, Nietzsche talked about this, what he called the slave revolt in genealogy of morals, that at some point in history, all the downtrodden people, all the losers got together and basically mutually agreed that power was bad. But if we go back to something more primordial and primal, power is just obviously what everybody is after. And we should just acknowledge that and accept it. Now, Nietzsche's complicated. That's not the only thing he said about it. That's my understanding of Levian Satanism. Please fill in that picture or correct me if yeah, I'm wrong. That's, I think, basically correct. He was very Ayn Randian in his philosophy and very inspired by Nietzsche. And he lifted a lot of his text for the Satanic Bible from a book called Might is Right by Ragnar Redbeard, which was kind of this proto-fascist pamphlet. Yeah. So there there are dark origins to some of this stuff. I also want to emphasize that he was a pioneer in a lot of ways. He pioneered non-theistic Satanism. So Church of Satan was a non-theistic religion and still is. And TST has that in common with Church of Satan. Now, I need to clarify from the outset, I'm not a spokesperson for the Satanic Temple. So I'm really just speaking as an individual minister within the temple, right? But it's safe to say both TST and Church of Satan are non-theistic and... So he he was a pioneer in a lot of ways, and modern Satanism would not exist without him. And I find a lot of his ideology pretty grotesque. Well, and we're going to get to kind of the Satanic Temple, which is uh, the—is it an organization? Like, what, what would you call it? Is it a— It's a church. Yeah. It's a church. It's yeah. the church that you are—of which you are a minister. And— 
so that's the that's the final one. So okay, tell us about the Satanic Temple. So I this is relatively new to me. I had been you know sort of aware of the Levian stream of things, uh, but not not until more recently the Satanic Temple. Yeah. So the Satanic Temple is, I would say, the largest satanic organization in the world right now. It was founded by Lucian Greaves and Malcolm Jerry in 2013. And it was an updating. It was a reformation of Satanism. They looked at modern Satanism and saw that the influence of LaVey was fairly outdated. LaVey was doing the best he could in his time, and it's outdated. And it it needs a, it needs an update. And so Lucian and Malcolm shifted the focus towards compassion and empathy, towards serving others, towards community. And it was also explicitly political from the very beginning as well, and acknowledging the ways in which Christian hegemony work against religious minorities. And yeah. it, it it was attempting to affect change in that regard. So now that important qualification, that does not make it any less religious. You know, people often assume that TST is a troll organization and that the Satanic Temple is just using the symbolism and the trappings of religion and the trappings of Satanism to make a political point. And that we are ultimately just atheists cosplaying as Satanists or cosplaying as a religion. And that is absolutely not true. The activist work of the Satanic Temple emerges from the deeply held convictions that are Satanic in nature. And so, you know, the plot twist is that TST is not full of atheists pretending to be Satanists. They are actually Satanists. <laughs> and right. a lot of people come to the Satanic Temple or perceive the Satanic Temple as just a secular organization fighting for the division of church and state. And very often they leave disillusioned because they realize that, no, it's actually a deeply religious group of people. So I do have a question about that. So we're going to, we'll probably end up coming back to this, especially towards the end when we're kind of comparing, comparing notes. Mm. But there are these seven fundamental tenets of the Satanic Temple. Uh, I'm going to read them real quick. This is just from satanictemple.com. One, one should strive to act with compassion and empathy toward all creatures in accordance with reason. Two, the struggle for justice is an ongoing and necessary pursuit that should prevail over laws and institutions. Three, one's body is inviolable, subject to one's own will alone. That feels like the most Levian kind of holdover bit. Yes. Four, the freedoms of others should be respected, including the freedom to offend, to willfully and unjustly encroach upon the freedoms of another is to forego one's own. Five, beliefs should conform to one's best scientific understanding of the world. One should take care never to distort scientific facts to fit one's beliefs. Six, people are fallible. If one makes a mistake, one should do one's best to rectify it and resolve any harm that might have been caused. And seven, every tenet is a guiding principle designed to inspire nobility in action and thought. The spirit of compassion, wisdom, and justice should always prevail over the written or spoken word. When I read through those the other day, I was like, I mean, it, it basically sounds like secular humanism to me. I don't say yes. that in a, that, that's not a, a knock or anything like that, but you're very clear that it is religious 
And I guess if I just look at the tenets, I don't see a lot of religion in there. What I, other than we have tenets, like a, like we have our own 10 commandments. I suppose that's, there is, there could be, or maybe there's ritual around it or something. So fill me in on like how, how it is separate from secular humanism. Yeah. So secular humanism doesn't have the structure of ritual and symbol and ceremony and community the satanic temple has. Okay. And I think that's really important because we are embodied creatures and we sure. need symbol yeah. and we need guiding myths. And, and so believing the tenets is not enough to be a Satanist. You, you, mm. all, you have to be drawn to the symbol of Satan, Satan as the ultimate outsider, Satan as the unbowed will that stands up against arbitrary authority. Now, important caveat here, modern Satanism is by and large not based in the biblical Satan. So it is instead founded in the Miltonian Satan of Paradise Lost, who is the unbowed will standing up against incredible odds with the risk of failure and then through history, this literary tradition formed with the romantic poets and leftists and revolutionaries and mystics of seeing that Satan as an icon for the outsider, as an icon of the unbowed will. So it isn't enough to just believe in the tenets. The tenets provide a scaffold for ethical behavior. The tenets are front of my mind every day. Mm-hmm. I live by them every day. But what is it that draws me to TST rather than just being a secular humanist, being a non-religious secular humanist? It is that I have a religious impulse within me. Mm-hmm. I desire a guiding myth, a guiding symbol around which a community can orbit and that can provide a scaffold upon which we can build our lives. That's really important as human beings. And I think that that aspect is something that quite a bit of modern atheism has failed to appreciate. Can we start with your Christian upbringing and the fact that at one point you were a Christian missionary? So get us to that point in the story. (laughs) All right. So uh, I was born into a very Christian household. Let's see. I was raised charismatic Presbyterian. My parents were part of an international organization. My dad still leads an international Christian organization. I won't say which one. Yeah. And so I was raised in this bubble. I was raised in this culture where people practice the gifts of this Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophecy, all, all that stuff. Went to Christian schools, eventually went to youth with a mission in my late teens, All of this was well and good, except for the fact that I started to realize that I was attracted to the same sex instead of to the opposite sex when I was in middle school. And at that season in my life, you know, I was in a culture where ex-gay ideology was the only narrative, the only pathway that I could take. Yeah when these attractions started to reveal themselves, right? So I spent my teens and early 20s embedded in kind of the ex-gay way of thinking, which is this is a a wound 
this is the effect of a deep emotional, psychological wound yeah. that has distorted my sexual attractions as I hit puberty, and, and that wound has become eroticized. And there is a demonic element. First of all, I'm so sorry that you had to spend time in those waters as someone who was attracted to other men. I am very familiar, of course, with that way of thinking. And in fact, one of the things on which I think my dad has changed his mind on this, and and I started arguing with him about 15 years ago about it, but he was a very compassionate Christian psychotherapist. He believed that. He basically, at that time, maybe in the 80s, 90s, that was a real zeitgeisty opinion among even Christian like psychologists, like even people with legitimate training. Not, I'm not talking, he was not a biblical counselor. He is a marriage family therapist, you know, licensed to practice for decades. And he was convinced by that. He thought what's going on here is some sort of semi-Freudian, you know, original lack uh, in some sort of gender development between a child and their mother or father or some sort of inappropriate something or sometimes abuse or whatever, that that's what results in, you know, homosexuality, lesbianism, yes. whatever. And yes. I guess I just want to, I, I, I certainly don't want to downplay the harm of that view. I just, I do want to contextualize it maybe for people that in the, in the nineties, like you could be a pretty fair minded loving person, but if you're in a Christian scene, like yes. you could really believe that. And you could think that there was good evidence for it even. They weren't, they weren't bad people. And, and I also want to emphasize that in the day it was kind of revolutionary because it was an attempt to, to embody Christian love, Christ-like love to truly a leper class of people yeah. where, where prior to ex-gay therapy slash ministry in the evangelical world, there was no cure. You were simply condemned to being a pariah. You were yeah. simply an outsider. And so it, it was an attempt, I think, to embody genuine Christ-like love, but yeah. it it had horrific consequences. Yeah. And it was empirically not well-founded. I mean, in I guess, yes. what, I guess what you're saying, like in some sense, better to be considered wounded than a witch, <laughs> you know, like than just yeah. straight and, up fucked or whatever. And it also, you know, demonstrates the the harms of, you know, the potential downfalls of good intentions. I mean, yeah. the, the correct lesson to derive from something like ex-gay therapy is that we can believe things with the best of intentions and still do tremendous harm. That, that I think, is the correct lesson to derive from that time in history. I think it's also true of the missionaries and other Christians who were involved in colonialism yes. and imperialism. So when do you when do you engage in missions work? What what age are you for that? Yeah, that was 18 and 19. Okay. And that came to an abrupt end when I survived a shooting when I was 19 years old in in Colorado. And I've written and talked about that before. It was the religious shootings in 2007 at the Colorado base, YWAM base. And then wow. that was the first location for it and then the second location of the shooting was Ted Haggard's New Life Church. Um, people can look it up. It was yeah. um, back in 2007. So that that brought an abrupt end sure. to my missions career. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh-huh. And f***ed up my life. Sorry, I don't know if we can swear oh, on this uh, show. Oh, yeah, you absolutely can. Uh, yep. F***ed <laughs> up my life for most of my 20s. Yeah. And then 
eventually went to college, the entire time struggling deeply with my orientation, struggling yeah. deeply with my place in in the church as someone who is gay. And I went on this long, excruciating odyssey of going from ex-gay to going to conservative this is this I can't change this orientation, but still conservative in terms of my theology and whether it is a sin or not. So I cannot change who I am, cannot change my orientation, but it would be wrong for me to act on it. So I was committed to celibacy. Yeah, like a side B Christian is a yeah, side B. Yes, you know the you know the oh, terminology. Yeah. Oh yeah, you know the terminology. Yeah. So I I was in the side B world for a long time, mm-hmm. and. Then I eventually came to a side A, which means God, the belief that God blesses same-sex relationships yeah. to the same degree that he blesses uh, straight relationships. And this experience definitely didn't help my eventual departure from Christianity. You know, it didn't help that I was so demonized that I had this direct experience of demonization, yeah. of being an outcast. That didn't help, but it's more complicated than that because it was also Christianity that saved my life. You know, my life was ruined by Christianity that did not affirm my sexuality, but it was also saved by Christians. And it was a, it was saved by a progressive vision of Christianity and and a progressive Christ who was the, the symbol of universal compassion and a universal Christ who draws all things to himself. And who created homosexuality as just another natural variation in nature. So I don't think that I left Christianity because I was wounded. And that's really important for me to emphasize. I don't think it helped, <laughs> you know. I, oh, I don't sure. think it, yeah. it was it was I'm sure it was a contributing factor, but I don't think I left Christianity because I was traumatized or because of my treatment at the hands of the church, I was saved by the church. Uh, I was saved by parts of the church just as much as I was destroyed by it. So, it, so it's a much more complicated story. Yeah. And what really led me away from Christianity, I think, so this is in my late 20s, was I have a skeptical temperament, and I've always had a skeptical temperament. And I have struggled with my faith, just the pure tenets of faith, and not just the tenets of Christianity, but the tenets of of any faith in any God. You know, so this was this was much more fundamental than than having beef with the Christian faith alone. This was an all encompassing doubt about the supernatural, about. Yeah any particular claims of any God that has will and volition and interacts with our world in any meaningful way. From being a teenager, there was a part of me that always found that untenable. And that doubt just grew and grew and grew and grew in a myriad of ways. I'm currently working on a series on my Substack about all the ways in which it grew, or I'm trying yeah. to catalog it. But it was it was a Long, long, long journey, and I like to describe it as I had a, a terminal case of doubt. You know, I listen to a That's lot good. of Christians talk about doubt, and it is described almost like a seasonal flu. 
It's a season mm. where you can boost your immune system. It's a season of challenge. It's a season of struggle. But inevitably, you kind of come out of it with a renewed faith. And that's how I've always heard a lot of people in the church talk about doubt. C.S. Lewis, I think, talked about doubt in that way. I did not have a cold. I did not have the flu. I didn't yeah. have any of that. I didn't have COVID. I had cancer. And mm-hmm. my diagnosis was terminal. And I finally gave up my faith in 2017. The challenge for me was that I still knew that I was a deeply religious person. I still value the structure of symbol and ritual and liturgy and community that brings order to one's life. I think that's really, really important. And so it was right at the transition where I was letting go of Christianity or letting go of my faith. And I I struggled to find a non-theistic niche within Christianity. And they do exist. You know, you don't need to be strictly creedal to be a Christian. I have a pretty expansive definition of what Christian can mean. Yeah. But I was in a place in life where I just did not have the support to be able to do that, even in progressive spaces. I, a a non-theistic Christian, Christianity was not welcomed. And at that point, I was just like, you know, I've spent my entire life fighting within this religion. And this is one fight too many. And I think I'm done. Sure. If I have to fight one last time to, for my inclusion, if I have to have one more fight for my inclusion as a non-theistic person, then I think I would rather just go to another organization or go to another religion that is more accommodating of what I actually believe about the world, which is that there is no God. Yeah. Or that I don't know if there is a God. Mm. And so the the Satanic Temple came into my view at that time, and it checked all the boxes. It was all the things that I wanted, and it was non-theistic. It was affirming of LGBT people. It was affirming of women. It was socially engaged, and it supported the symbolic and communal and ritual aspects of religious life. And I fell in love with the symbol. I fell in love with the romantic Satan who was the ultimate outsider because I was for my entire life, the ultimate outsider. And the, the feeling that people have when they hear the word Satan or Satanism, that feeling of disgust, that gross, icky feeling that they have, that is the exact same feeling that people have had through history towards the marginalized and towards the outsider, people yeah. who are genuinely demonized. And so it's it's the veneration of the stranger. It's the veneration of the outsider. And so I've, I fell in love with it in 2017, and I've been with it ever since. I'm now in leadership and in ministry with the Satanic Temple. And yeah, so that's that's a very truncated version of the story. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it because there's a lot of little alleyways for us to walk down together here. Um, wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, man. That's It makes a lot of sense to me. I've got like literally eight to ten pieces of it that I want to sort of dig dig down, uh, drill down with you on. So um, rather than responding in general, let's, let's just start to do that. Yes, so let's do it. Okay. Let's talk theism. Because that that seems to be really what it what it came down to for you is like, well, 
actually, and I talk about this sometimes, there are listeners to this show who identify as religious but not spiritual. I used to be that. Now I'm actually more spiritual okay. as, as well. We can get into that. Yep. But like that, that would have, certainly would have described you for a minute there part on part of that journey. I kind of want to start there. I think that that sense of having a myth, uh, like a guiding myth, right? Not in the sense of uh, untrue, but like more than true or kind of basically grounding us in a moral story where we can place ourselves and our communities towards some end, some beautiful, good and true end, right? Like that kind of myth, uh, capital M maybe. That's right. I I think that you're right. I mean, I actually think that my gut is that humans can't actually really live without that. In any place where religion has faded, new replacement myths take its place. I don't know yes. if that's true for a hundred percent of people. Probably not. My guess is that there is some amount of people who don't need a uh, an organizing myth. I mean, I would put that at less than ten percent or something like. It's not a it's not a huge number of people. My, is my guess. I call these two groups on my Substack the bound and the unbound, where I, I just keep encountering these these like. And it's way oversimplified, and this is probably more of a spectrum. And so this is entirely armchair, and don't don't take this too seriously. But yeah. bound, meaning people who are unhappy if they are not bound to a – and that's kind of the root of the word religion, to be bound. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, people who are unhappy if they are not bound to an explicit religious system – or tradition, or community, and I am one of those people who is just deeply dissatisfied in life if I don't have that. But then there are other mm-hmm. people who are unbound, and they can really only experience being bound, being bound to a particular tradition, particular tribe, particular religious identity as a step backwards, as regressive, as kind of stepping back into bondage. And I don't entirely know what accounts for like those personality differences, sure. but I... I am definitely one of the bound. And what I know is that I am more fulfilled and more happy and more satisfied if I have a path. And that if there are other people walking that path with me, Mm -hmm. and if that path has things like rituals and philosophies and stories and so on, right? And, And I really worry actually about secularization because of this, because I, 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 do worry that in the process of secularization, which is good, I mean, it, I think that's a positive thing, that's a positive force, that there is a baby in that bathwater that's getting thrown out. And I, and I worry about what happens at a, at a communal level for a lot of individuals when those kind of meaning-making and religious structures get wiped out. That I, I worry about that, and I think that maybe some despair and radicalization might take place when that happens. Yeah, uh, I agree. I think, by the way, though, if you're a Satanist, you have to say that the Rosemary's baby is going to get thrown out with the bathwater. I think you should. There, that should yeah, be I, a rule. That was a missed opportunity. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, if you haven't seen that movie, you'll you'll get that joke if you watch it. So when I'm saying that there are other myths that will take the place of, of, you know, the religious myths or or even non-theistic religious myths, they're not necessarily 
very well organized or thought out, like going back to growing or positive. up in the, or going, yeah, right. But growing back to going up in the nineties, you know, uh, James K. A. Smith, the Christian philosopher talks about malls. Uh, you know, one of his books opens with like a description of walking into a modern mall with like cathedral ceilings and glass at the top to let in the light down onto the floor and the ritual of going to the mall and walking through it. And basically, instead of the stations of the cross, you just have all the stores. And it really is like a a big communal myth about consumption and er earning money to buy goods, which will make us uh, happy and project physically by what we are wearing or driving our status and the kind of person that we are and show people that we've made it, that we are living a good life. And I, I don't want to actually over demonize that. I think that there can be as a therapist, like I'm always looking for anything that is bringing anything positive into my clients' lives. So if you like to go walk the mall with your parents and that is a thing you do as a family, then I would say there's, there's some good stuff in that too. But there is certainly a, a myth, an, an overarching myth to American capitalism and consumption culture that I think for a lot of people replaced church or replaced, replaced the sort yeah. of dominant Christian myth. Yeah, I've been thinking about that kind of stuff a lot because I've been doing a lot of tabletop gaming with a group of friends. And there are so many times when I'm in the middle of a game, Magic, The Gathering or whatever, and I take a step back and I'm like, there's something very religious about this. You know, it's yeah. a group of people getting coming together to kind of engage in this ritual of mutual imagination and storytelling. And there's there's not just something incredibly primordial and and religious and almost spiritual about that. And so we we can't help but find those stories. We're storytelling creatures and and we are religious creatures. I don't know if you're familiar with David Dark. And his book, yeah, uh, I've interviewed Life, him. Life's yeah. Too, yeah, he's great. I have too. He's he's fantastic. But he has a book called Life's Too Short to Pretend You Aren't Religious. And right. one of the main ideas in that book is we have to think we, we are all bound in some way to a narrative. And we have to examine that narrative. We have to study carefully what what is it that we take for granted as our religion because we all have one in some shape or form. You mentioned magic. You mentioned magic, the gathering, the, the card yes, tabletop yes. game, but I actually have yes. a note here about magic. I wanted to ask you, so, so you were raised charismatic and I think yes. there is this odd thing where you're now a Satanist who doesn't believe in magic, but you were raised a Christian who did. Who did? Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> gifts of the spirit and stuff, right? Yes. Yes. So, you know, it's interesting because if there's one thing that I think my childhood gave me, it was a deep appreciation for altered states of consciousness. Okay. And yeah. you know, the important thing about those experiences is that they are real. When someone speaks in tongues, or when someone is slain in the spirit, yeah, or is in a worship experience or whatever the case may be, no matter how crazy it might look to people on the outside, which they do, they objectively look crazy. There is a real neurological experience that is yep. taking place and people are accurately reporting 
was pe- people are honest by and large honestly yeah. reporting the experiences that they've had and so i had those experiences when i was a kid i spoke in tongues i was slain in the spirit i had all of those kind of extraordinary neurological experiences and so this has given me a, a deep appreciation for altered states of consciousness and has kind of led to my current meditation practice and my current fascination with consciousness and altered states of consciousness and that there's still real value in those, right? And so again, not throwing out Rosemary's baby with the (laughs) bathwater, there is, there's, there's value in kind of retaining that, that, you know, religious practices, spiritual practices that engage in altered states of consciousness. And so I used to believe in magic, literally, that there was a supernatural force passing through me when I spoke in tongues, that that was the Holy Spirit. But in a way, I still kind of believe in magic in that it is a psychological phenomenon that has real impact on our lives. You know, I wouldn't call it magic in a supernatural sense, but there, right. there, there are re- these are real experiences and they're valuable, I think. I think you're right about that. Yeah. We, I talk about it with Sarah Lane Ritchie, um, my friend and philosophical theologian. She, she uses the phrase spiritual technologies. Yeah. And essentially that that we all utilize these churches, utilize them. Religions are very good at utilizing spiritual technologies, but we can we can just be honest about that. Uh, We don't need to demonize them. We don't need to say, oh, like like, for instance, you have the you have the former worship pastor TikToker, right? There's a number of these folks who are like peeling back the curtain on here's all the things that we do to make you have a worship experience that you think is God. And, and Sarah and Sarah and I would say, so what? Like, yeah, use those for good. Like nobody is going through life without having carefully curated experiences. If I go to a fucking 49ers game, it is an extremely curated experience to have me participate in this big 50,000 person event with collective effervescence, the seats are designed to be in a certain spot. If I have enough money, I'll get to sit in an even better spot. You know, all the pageantry, all, you know, it's like, yeah, like we're always doing that. If I host a dinner party, I'm doing that. I'm thinking about light and music and when do I want to serve drinks and how strong are they going to be before the food comes? Like, it's just, a, it's just being realistic about the fact that we and and organizations and groups we take part in, companies whose products we buy, whatever, people think about that stuff. They make intentional choices to shape our experience. That is neither good nor bad. What's good or bad is if you are using that power for good or if you are using it for bad. Are you increasing people's antipathy toward outsiders or are you using those technologies to like remind them of the goodness and open heart of God? And if you're reminding them of that, then use them all day and go to town. Absolutely. My experience in the Satanic Temple has been that Asians in the temple use those technologies in a very self-aware way, <laughs> right? That and, makes sense, yeah. And so, yeah, and so Satanists, they they put on rituals. We do a number of, of rituals at the local level, and there's this very clear sense of, this is to provide psychological catharsis. And so there's a lot of supernatural language or there's a lot of spiritual language and, and ceremonial stuff there, but but it's ultimately for the sake of 
bonding, of of catharsis, of being able to purge challenging emotions, um, past hurt, to have some kind of transformational experience. And all of that is still real, even if we take the supernatural element out of it. And this is kind of the crazy thing. This is the insanity that I've discovered is that these supernatural technologies work even if you don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Or, or these spiritual technologies work yeah. even if you don't believe in a God, and you can still have just as powerful an experience even if you're a non-theist. I, I, I know that some people do. I have no doubt that you do have just as powerful I experience. I do. I wonder whether everyone can. Yeah. yeah, that that is worth caveating. It's an open empirical question for me, kind of at the population level. And I, I don't I don't know the answer. I'm not sure that anybody knows the answer. Like how many yeah. people can do it without those beliefs? Because I I've seen it with clients and anybody who works with clients that have any sort of spirituality, which, by the way, should be every clinician. You do have clients with with active spirituality. You probably should engage mm-hmm. it in their treatment. Uh, that's that's thankfully becoming more clear in the in the wider sort of psychological training world. But the belief it can be powerful. I mean, so, uh, you know, I just can think of many clients who really strongly feel like God had a hand in something that happened in their life. And that belief is doing some real work for them. So, yeah, you know, that that's something that I'm always kind of trying to be careful about. Let me ask you this, though. Nowhere in the seven fundamental tenets is the sort of non-supernatural, non-theistic stuff. Do you have people that worship with you who do believe that there's like some real magic going on uh, in the sense that maybe a person speaking in tongues might believe there's sort of supernatural stuff going on? Or if you you really start engaging, does the non-theism, non-supernatural stuff, is that basically baked into the cake. Both. It is baked into the cake of the culture and supernaturalism will never fully go away. Sure. And that's okay. You know, there, I like to think of the tenets. I was just recently in a conversation with the theologian Randall Rouser, and he used this distinction of centering documents versus bounded documents. And I'd never heard that before, but I think it's really excellent where a centering document is like the core beliefs or or values or documents that that a community orbits around and and it's important to uphold for cultural reasons but it can get fuzzy at the edges whereas a bounded document is really what determines whether you are in or out i i right. think the tenets are more of a centering document and Non-theism particularly ties in with the fifth tenet, which is the one about science. One should never distort scientific facts to fit one's beliefs. Right. And so a lot of Satanists would see claims of the supernatural, including God, as contrary to that tenet. But the thing is, I am open to all kinds of things. And I used to be much more of a hard materialist. So mm-hmm. after I left Christianity, I used to be much more of a hard materialist and everything was just the brain doing mysterious mechanistic brain things following the laws of physics and that everything right. could really be reduced to that including consciousness and now I'm much more agnostic on that. And 
I'm much more open to other possibilities like panpsychism or pantheism. I'm 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 more open. I'm open to all kinds of crazy stuff. The the universe is mysterious. I'm I'm not even dogmatically closed to the existence of God. Rather, my position is that I I don't feel like I have sufficient evidence for God, and therefore I'm withholding belief. But hmm. I so so I'm an agnostic atheist. I it's it's an open handed kind of atheism versus an anti theism, which is just the conviction that God does not exist. That that is not me at all. There is room for exploration, and there is room for doubt, and there is room for an openness to the mystery of the cosmos. And there are real mysteries out there. I'm confounded by the mystery of consciousness in particular. I think that's a real mystery. I think that's a truly hard problem. And my meditation practice has really pressed me up against that. And so I'm now agnostic on that. And that, I think, is entirely, that, that comports completely with the fifth tenet. I think a lot of people interpret the fifth tenet as you must be dogmatically closed. You must be Mm -hmm. epistemically closed to the existence of God or the supernatural or to magic or whatever the case may be. I don't think that's the case at all. I I think it's just a matter of acknowledging what we do and don't know and being honest about that and being clear that I don't know what consciousness is. I don't know what happens after I die. And that's as far as I can go, but I can be open to the mystery of it. I was expecting a bit more daylight between my Satanist guest and myself <laughs> today. Well, uh, to be clear, you have some other Satanists on, and I'm sure there would be sure. more daylight. But, you know, sure. there's, it's a very individualistic yeah. religion. Yeah, this yeah. Partic- It's a very individualistic religion, and many of us have different metaphysics. Lots of really cool stuff recently released and coming up on the Patreon feed. To join, head to patreon.com slash dancoke. That link is in the show notes. And patrons get access to what is now most months, three exclusive episodes per month. Sometimes that's like a half episode or a full version of an episode where the first part is on the main feed. But we've upped it from two a month uh, to be more content for patrons each month. You also have access to the patron-only Facebook group. And some of the recent episodes and upcoming ones are awesome. We've got Brandon Flannery discussing his uh, personal research into why people are leaving Christianity. We've got a most, uh, the most recent Generation Gap Culture Hour with Tony Jones and Josh Gilbert and myself. Uh, was a lot of fun. We've got some stuff coming up about the psychology of Christian nationalism and maybe some uh, additional media response Uh, There's some movies and uh, TV shows that I think are going to be getting some episodes here. I don't want to say too much yet in case plans change, but fun stuff coming up um, on the Patreon. So please consider joining patreon.com slash Dan Coke. So let me lay a few cards of my own on the table. Uh, Tarot cards. (laughs) Sorry, I, I will. I will try to do fewer dad jokes here, but let, let me throw a few cards just so that we can, and you, we can kind of, you know where I'm coming from and then we can kind of bat some stuff around. So I am a Christian by which I mean my life is oriented around 
the life and teachings and basic Christian rituals that come from the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, right? So I consider the Sermon on the Mount to be kind of my primary ethical guiding set of principles or teachings. I think that the idea of sort of divine self-sacrifice is sort of the the kind of purest and like like maybe logically most possibly pure type of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Yep. Yeah, that like that grounds sort of a um, a self-sacrificial ethic of love. I also find myself having spiritual experiences within the Christian tradition. And for me to to be a non-theist would essentially be to to say that I cannot trust my experience. There's a weird thing there. Now, I could interpret my experience in many different ways. I have these moments, and they're not that infrequent, where I, I'm able to kind of turn my attention to to God, to what to whatever is bigger. And like I will sometimes get a like a yeah, like I'll get a, a feeling of joy that to me serves as like a confirmation of whatever I'm con- contemplating doing or saying or, or whatever, or a, a plan I have or something, right? Like I will like go to God for guidance, much like the psalmist appears to have gone to God for guidance, you know, the psalmists. And so if I were to go, well, but that's bullshit, <laughs> that would be kind of odd. Like that, I would essentially be saying, it feels to me like I'd be saying, well, that's a, a, some sort of a trick or whatever. Like there, there is no, there's no one or thing. There's no anything on the other line, so to speak. Uh, that is just when I check in with myself, ult- I, ultimately, I guess, I feel that it aligns with my values or whatever. But my sense is that there is something beyond me. Now, it might be like capital C consciousness, you know, and, and maybe that's not strictly speaking theism or or something at that point, I just think it's beyond my pay grade. I don't know. Sure. If we want to say, well, it's not God, but it's consciousness, capital C. At that point, I'm like, it's fucking God. I mean, I, I don't know. What's the difference? I don't know. Some theologians might be able to parse the difference, but I would not feel confident that I could understand the difference between the two or ever know that I was right about it or something like that. So there's kind of a pay grade thing for me. But that's kind of my basic like Christianity. That said, I, I don't think I believe in the supernatural in a traditional sense. I I like when Tom Ord says the supernatural is natural. It is all probably natural in the sense that like it is what's going on is there are ultimately sort of physical particles, but then there's also stuff we don't even know how to describe like dark matter and maybe dark energy. And, and with consciousness, there's the, emergent properties hypothesis that like from, from simple stuff, you get these more complex entities that come out of it. So you need to have the atoms that make up your brain. You got to have the physical matter that makes up the neurons, but get enough neurons together. And now you've got volition. Now you've got this additional thing that if the, if the atoms go away, if you start depriving them of electricity and oxygen and blood, then it'll stop. But as long as you do that, you have this additional property. And so maybe that's part of it. But okay, now I feel like I've gone for a while and I'm not being incredibly succinct either. So I don't know if you have any questions or responses to any of that. 
Yeah, that's all really interesting. Just this morning, I I published an article called Why I Am Not a Christian, The Problem with Experiencing God. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gets to that, which is, you know, I, I find myself in this paradoxical place where I consider interior mystical experience and the contemplative life one of the most important projects of a single human life. I really, really believe that. I I think that it is, as, and that medit- I think that spiritual practice, be it meditation or whatever, is as important a skill as reading. Mm. That it is as important a skill as as reading or communication. I mean, it, I put it that far up there. And I kind of have this this radical skepticism about the content of those experiences. Sure. And I'm drawn to contemplative practice because of how it encourages wisdom and self-knowledge and grants one access to to experiences and emotions of self-sacrificial love, of the love of God, all of that stuff that really tangibly impacts how we treat other human beings and other mm-hmm. conscious creatures and and all of life on this planet. Like that that's incredibly important. And I try really hard to be agnostic about the potential metaphysics of those experiences. The experiences that I've had in meditation have been of consciousness as a kind of eternal unified field that is just bright and eternal and endless. And I mean, I've had, I mean, and this, this, the experience is as real as anything that I've ever known, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is absolutely overwhelming. And I've, I've tried really hard to practice restraint and, and how I let that experience inform what I believe is true about the world. Sure. What it has done is it has pushed me from being a materialist to being an agnostic. That is what it yeah. has done. Yeah. So I, I kind of have this, this radical skepticism and openness to the content of these experiences. And primarily that's, that's rooted in the realization that it, it, every religious experience or, or every religious conviction is backed by a profound inner knowing. And it doesn't matter what it is, you know, holistic healers, people who, who practice fraudulent, holistic stuff, alien religionists. I, you know, in the article I released this morning, I used several examples of, you know, the person, uh, a friend who had a vision of Odin on a mountaintop, and then another person who believes that they are an extraterrestrial come to earth to bless humanity and you know just the list goes on and on and on and so every single every single bizarre seeming religious conviction is backed by a sincere inner knowing and not not all of them can be true and so eventually my my kind right. of my skeptical brain kicks in yeah. and it's like that there's what this presents me with is a tie there there is a a tie for mm. claims of truth between inner knowing between experiences of inner knowledge and without some external thing to break that tie. Right. I just kind of have to have radical agnosticism towards all of it. I've sometimes wondered if the term Christian agnostic would be more appropriate for me because that specific thing is something that in my own theology, 
I am also trying to avoid. I don't want to put a lot of capital on claims that seem beyond anyone's pay grade. Yes. Or for, or for which there would just be like, I, I don't know what would count as evidence kind of a thing. So if I take, like, I'll come up with two examples. So example one would be something from my you know childhood. So a post, a, a pre-millennial dispensationalist view of the end of the world, all of the left behind series. That was a, it's a very specific set of claims the, the threshold for evidence is not met <laughs> uh, very clearly. And all those predictions have been wrong. And that's a sinking ship. Like that's not a good place to put my life because it's probably wrong. And, you know, so that's kind of an easy example, but take another one. Yeah. The center of whatever the beating heart of the universe is to use a human metaphor is, is love, maybe self-sacrificial love. Well, hmm, you know, we might point to the experiences of of contemplatives and mystics across religious traditions, even non-theistic philosophers uh, who have gone very deep into the human mind um, and, and thought very deeply about these things. And we can look at the sort of basic agreement of those people. That's not an open and shut case. But it's a much better case than could be made for the the left behind predictions yeah. of an antichrist and shit like that. You know, it's interesting because my partner has just completed his very long conversion to Judaism. Mm. So, and because I'm his partner, I am now a surprise member of a of a synagogue, which I did not <laughs> at all anticipate. <laughs> so uh, um, that might be like the weirdest. Yeah, like you you always hear of people kind of converting to Judaism or Catholicism to get married, but just showing up with a, as a Satanist with a brand new Jewish partner, that that's, there's gotta be, with, with gotta a be brand one new, of not I was, <laughs> I am deaf. Oh, weird fact. There are a huge number of Jews in the Satanic temple. And in fact, one of the co-founders is Jewish. Well, it does. It, it has be, it is a religious and cultural tradition that has, in the last 500 years or whatever, relied a lot less on theism. That's right. right. Like, so that That's makes right. sense. That's right. And so, you know, I've learned a lot from John, my partner. And because prior to his conversion, I was not at all familiar with it. And at least in the tradition that he is in, which is Reformed, there is just much less emphasis on theism. It, it's almost... It it almost it doesn't it almost does not matter. Yeah. You know, it, it it's it's more of a well, you can be if you want to be, but whatever, it doesn't really matter. You can be an atheist and do this. The point is the practice. Right. And I sometimes wonder if Christianity really struggles with this because of the culture that we have created in Christianity through the creeds or, or, mm-hmm. or through kind of the the history of the councils and this strong emphasis on orthodoxy, this strong emphasis on right belief, and in all of the traditions, in, in Catholicism as well as in Protestantism. And and I sometimes wonder if it's like now a lot of Christians are having to undo that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, 
and it's something that I've that I'm now having to that I'm now watching a lot of Christians do because I'm I'm not in the Christian space anymore. But it it's been really interesting, and and that's what I ultimately wanted. That's before I left the church and before I stopped calling myself a Christian. That's what I was yearning for. Was basically I can still do Christianity. I just can't believe it. I can mm-hmm. do it. I can I can pray the prayers. I can go to church. I can care for the the poor. I can do all that shit. I can I can do all I can do Christianity. I just can't believe Christianity, but I didn't feel like there was a sufficient place for me. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in some to some degree I'm there, but but what I do with a lot of the beliefs is I am I'm just open to a lot of different interpretations of those beliefs. So, I mean, I don't, I could give examples, but if someone says, oh God, you know, God did this to teach me this lesson or whatever, then I could think like, well, uh, it's possible that God or whatever it takes to set up a universe, got the universe going in such a way that lessons like this in a finite space would produce these kinds of reality. Like I can kind of get there in a roundabout way where I don't feel the need to argue with them, especially if it's like in a therapeutic setting or something like there's a lot of different ways to think about it. Grieving children who might have like kind of supernatural beliefs to help them with their grief. I mean, I don't believe in the tooth fairy, but there's a way that like, entering the mind of a child and how they make sense of pain and, and hope and stuff is like, I mean, I think if you just control for the appropriateness, appropriateness of the language for the developmental age, I can still affirm it in a way. And that is a lot of times what I'm doing with the creeds. Or in a hospice. In a, yeah, hospice setting. Exactly. Or in a hospice setting where visitations, having ha, experiencing a visitation from loved ones who have died mm-hmm. before you is quite common. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's a normal experience. And it's or receiving a visitation from Jesus or from another deity like that's normal on the deathbed. And yeah, there are places where it's appropriate to put aside kind of the hard skepticism that I seem to be. Well, so, but I do want to talk about that. Like you talked about how doubt, a lot of Christians talked about it like a seasonal flu that would, you know, you basically have a dark night of the soul and then it goes away. And for you, it was a terminal case. Like it never went away. I I think that I have a a sort of a third, a third type, which is, is maybe you could call it existential Christianity or Christian existentialism or something. I don't think everybody experiences it this way, but I think I do where Doubt is actually just the constant companion of faith. And faith versus doubt is actually a lot of the language you use to describe the the symbol of the Satan, you know, the ultimate outsider standing up against incredible odds, the risk of failure. You know, this idea, that is kind of how faith and doubt work for me is when I have faith when I'm feeling sort of more in line where it's feeling more plausible to me, put it that way, then I'm feeling like, yeah, it is going to work out in the end. Uh, Justice will rain down, you know, like a waterfall and, and every tear will in fact be wiped away in some way that I can't comprehend, of course. And then when I'm doubting, it's like, no, (laughs) there will not be any justice this shit is never going to be made right. 
and we got to do what we can while we're here. Now, what's interesting is neither of those perspectives changes the fundamental trajectory or activities that I engage in. They're the same. The question is, when I feel more or less like the promises of the Christian or most theistic stories are going to happen, essentially, are are well-founded or not. And so it's not for me that the doubt comes and goes or takes over. It's always there. It's there in the way that existentialists talk about the human condition of like, you, you just don't have the facts. You, you just have to go without full knowledge. And yet you got to make decisions. You're going to live your entire life without the facts, without full knowledge of anything. And yet that doesn't mean you can't live a full life, but you are involved in the meaning making process because of all these contingencies and all these things that could be a different way and are a different way for the person next to you. And so that is a little different, right? Than like, oh, the the doubt never left or the doubt passed and I'm back in a faith season. Like I don't, I'm never far from yeah. either of them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No. And I, you know, and I hear from a lot of Christians who describe it that way. My, my co-host on my paid subscriber show, Timothy McPherson, he kind of describes doubt in that way, where it's just the, the constant companion and you, you learn to live with it. Um, yeah. And that learning to live with it is a productive spiritual experience. And I, that absolutely has a place. I, I think this just goes to show that there are many different types of doubt. And the doubt that I experienced was was an all-consuming doubt that questioned the validity of the project itself. Sure. You know, that that questioned the validity of living with it in in a meaningful way. You know, and, and so it was that to when I say all-consuming or deeper, that doesn't mean that it is smarter or wiser or somehow, you know, whatever the case is, it was just different. You know, there there are just different types of doubt. That isn't to say that one is, you know, smarter or wiser than the other. Yeah. Let's talk about that third tenet of the Satanic Temple. One's body is inviolable. Uh, You cannot violate it. Subject to one's own will alone. This is probably the biggest tension between my own worldview and and the worldview of the Satanic Temple. I recognize where that comes from. I want to affirm within it, the sort of like human rights uh, part of that, that like for the vast majority of human history, there have been many classes of people whose bodies were not their own. And the only people whose bodies were their own were basically the men in power. And thankfully, thank God, (laughs) thank Satan, thank whoever, uh, that has been getting a lot better in, in a lot of parts of the world. Obviously, we're not there yet. And yet, fundamental to the Christian story is that greater love has, you know, there's no greater love than someone laying down their life for their friends. Now you could say, you could maybe make these match by saying, well, if you choose (laughs) to lay down your life, then you're not being violated. And so maybe that's the way to kind of do it. But there's an emphasis on will that I recognize from Nietzsche and Machiavelli and that I'm like, I'm just like a little bit uncomfortable with that from a Christian perspective. I, I want, a more balanced Aristotelian mean, a golden mean of like willfulness and autonomy, but also recognizing that I am a part of a community. And that like, for instance, as a married father, 
my body is not my own. And yeah, that's because I willingly signed up for it, but it wouldn't help me to constantly remind myself that my body is only my own in a situation where my body is partly my wife's and my son's as well. And so it's not like a hard disagreement, but in a formation way, it feels wonky to me. I'd rather be reminded of Christ's willingness to be crucified uh, and not stand up to political power. You know, I'd rather that's a, a better focus for me to sort of get the job done that I'm trying to get done um, at a spiritual level, just as in, in my own life. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, it's so interesting because whenever I whenever I have a conversation with Christians, and it doesn't matter if, if they're progressive or conservative, this is the one tenet that always that's always the sticking point for them. And yeah. so it, it's really, really interesting that that this is the tenet that that most Christians I talk to find some disagreement with. And I think that's all fair. You know, it a, a lot of the conflict with the tenets, I think, can be resolved when we look at them as a unit. And mm. so G.K. Chesterton said that the world is not full of Christian vices. The world is full of Christian virtues that have been separated out from each other and gone mad, something like that. And the same is true of satanic, the, the same is true of satanic virtues. So each of the seven tenets, if they are taken on their own, they, they become pathological. Any of the tenets, mm. the freedom to offend, Taken on its own, that is pathological. The science tenet. Taken on its own, yeah. that becomes pathological. I mean, any any single principle. I, I like that a lot. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, any single principle, not just in TST, but any single principle can, when if there are not outside constraining principles that keep it in check, it becomes pathological. And and the same is true of the third tenet, the, the bodily autonomy. So we have to read it in light of the other tenets. Is it compassionate? One, one, one's body is inviolable, subject to one's own will alone, but how we practice it, is that compassionate towards others and to ourself? Is it within reason? Is it, you know, the struggle for justice is an ongoing and necessary pursuit that should prevail over laws and institutions? Is how we use our body, does it comport with that tenet? I mean, and you can go through all of them. And, and so when read in light of the other tenets, it, it might not completely relieve some of the anxiety or some of the tension there because mm -hmm. it does come from another place. I mean, it does it does come from kind of a radical individualist yeah. perspective. And I, I agree with you that this is the tenet where that probably shines through the most. And it's it's really about having the autonomy to do what we want to do with our bodies and and theistic authority not Im, not imposing itself on it and the idea that the individual is the most important unit of society my my guess is that the satanic temple does not do super well in non-western collectivist societies because that would no. just not not compute in japan or yeah. ecuador or whatever no, we we do have quite a few congregations overseas, so it is international, but it isn't. I, I haven't seen Satanism, at least TST brand of Satanism, flourish in those in those cultures. And you know, and and that's very much where I come from. I am a I am a secular humanist philosophically, you know, mm -hmm. and so I'm a I'm a firm believer in the individual as the most important unit of society. I think that there is a 
false par or, or there's a there's a false paradox here though or, or what's the a false binary there's a false binary yeah. here though between the importance of community and the importance of the individual you know and i and i think that there are ways to square that circle in a way that satisfy the human need for community while also emphasizing the need for individual autonomy so i, I don't really think that there is a conflict there hmm. But this principle has to be constrained by by other principles. And, you I know, like you that. brought up will. You brought up the emphasis on will, which absolutely is there, which is, a you know, probably a reference to Nietzsche. I the irony is that I'm actually not even sure that I believe in free will. I'm not even sure that that's a thing. <laughs> and yet that that doubt about the existence of free will does not conflict for me with with this tenet. I probably am more likely to think there is a conflict between individualism and collectivism because of my therapeutic training, that it's a real tricky line to walk with clients from other cultures and no kind of one paragraph description of what's, you know, what's best can, can be kind of concocted. It's like, it's truly in my mind, an unanswered question what is yeah. either which is best for human flourishing, depending on how we want to define flourishing, or what is the what is the right kind of formula for determining yeah. how an individual might flourish within or without the collectivist culture in which they're raised if they're in a Western setting? That's that's the way that I have to ask it because I'm doing therapy in a Western individualized setting. There's the mirror for sure. question for the individualist client who goes to live in Ecuador and sees an Ecuadorian therapist in a collectivist setting. Fascinating. They, they have a different question to ask, right? So that's I'm assuming you're is, speaking from direct experience here. Yeah, I've, I've had many immigrant clients yeah, yeah. Uh, currently, uh, including at the moment, you know, who, mm. who th that is a balance and they've had different approaches. You know, I, I've had some who actually sought out Western therapy, you know, and then others more ambivalent about the differences. So yeah. it's tough. And I, I don't think, I don't think there's an easy answer to it, at least not at the practical sort of therapeutic level. Makes sense. Yeah. That, that strikes me as probably true. W one of the central symbols in Satanism is the Baphomet. It was a symbol, uh, the sabbatic goat that was drawn by Eliphas Levy in the 1800s. And, it's the symbol that everyone is familiar with. It's kind of the, the goat horn symbol with the goats, the horned horns goat and, yeah. doing the mudra of as above, so below. And there are elements of masculine and feminine and light and dark and good and evil and angelic and demonic. So it's, and it's, it's really about the reconciliation of opposites. And mm -hmm. that symbol is central, not just to Satanism and not just to TST Satanism, but to occult Western esotericism in general. And uh, so it's like the Western yin and yang. So in in contrast to I think Levian Satanism, which is kind of I don't want to mischaracterize Levian Satanism, but it it really is a, an anti-religion religion. I would say that at least in my conversations with Lucian, the way he envisioned TST was an embrace of the Baphomet, an embrace of the reconciliation of opposites, and so. I've written an article called the satanic paradoxes or something like that, um, where it within satanic life, there are these seeming contradictions, these kind of koans of, of contradictory religious practice, atheism and 
spirituality, a sense of humor plus the gravitas of religion, you know, just a, a whole number of them. And I think one of those satanic paradoxes is community versus individualism. Yeah. And there is no clear resolution to those things, but we have to engage with both in a meaningful way. And how that works, that's the process of, of religious dialogue. That's the process of the religious life, figuring that out. Would I offend Levian Satanists if I said that it seems to me like Levian Satanism is the sex pistols? They're just like, fuck you, anarchy in the UK, God save the queen. And the Satanic <laughs> Temple is like the clash. It's like, what can we do with this? Let's be a little more thoughtful here. Let's address the Sandinista crisis. Let's address racial tension, <laughs> you know, with Caribbean UK immigrants and, and white working class Brits. And like, l let's open things up and, and be a little more thoughtful. Is that, is that obviously that's super reductive. Does that map at all? I mean, I like, view? I like that. <laughs> I like that, but you'll Strummer. have to, yeah. exactly. But, but you'll have to take that up with the Levians. You know, it's also it also has to be said that there's a lot of bad blood between TST and Church of Satan right now. And uh, so the less we wade into those waters, the better. <laughs> Man, I would just if if I were coming up with groups of people not to fuck with it, LeVay and Satanists might be near the top of that list. Yeah, you <laughs> don't want to fuck with them. They they're very not to they're have very beef with. <laughs> they will at I won't I won't say anything. Yeah. Um, OK. But yeah, yeah we, we, there, there's fine. a lot of bad blood between TST and Church of Satan right now. Yeah. OK, so kind of kind of bringing us full circle here, maybe just our final like compare and contrast. So lots of lots of interesting points along the way. When I say I believe in God, basically what I mean is, you know, that impulse that you and I both have toward like I'm, I'm going to try, try and you know, conform it to what we've been talking about here. So that impulse that we both have, both to to be religious, I think we both share that. We are bounded types, like you were saying, not unbound types. I think I got a lot of unbound in me and I, I've got a lot of punk rock in me and I, I can never just sit quietly and be the, the sort of 50th percentile middle of the bell curve member of a religious community. I can't do that. I I do recognize the value and the need for yeah, this capital M myth, this this sort of direction. And and I actually think I benefit from 2000 years of, of wisdom tradition around that. A lot of practices, you know, even Sam Harris, you know, who is the big secular meditation guy would admit that he benefits from thousands of years of Hindu and Buddhist meditation practice to sort of inform his own practice. He's a I mean, I, I don't agree with every view he has, but right. he has been in terms of spiritual practice. Yeah. I was he picking up on that probably on kind of in that school. You and I have both found communities and sets of ritual and symbol with texts and whatever that can help us guide and structure an ethical life. You and I both have some sort of contemplative practice that serves those real world goals and, and you know, reaching those values. And, and even like the tenets of the church of Satan are like, you know, I, I would add a couple, I would maybe swap some stuff out, but it's not like, it's not so far off. I, I, I share a lot more with you than I do with many conservative Christians, for instance. So that part has been kind yes, of fun, <laughs> kind of funny to realize. 
I've always known that there was something like that, but now to be able to go like to pin it on a Satanist to put that <laughs> to put that fine of a point on it is uh, <laughs> that there's some value there. But what I say when I say I believe in God, or even I believe in that God, sort of the Christian God, broadly speaking, is like uh, something like the general picture of the divine as witnessed to in the Christian tradition of official love, that Jesus was at bare minimum plugged into something actual and real, still filtered through the early church. And I don't have direct access to all, all those things. All those caveats are there for me. I'm a true liberal Protestant. You know, I, I really, I do have all those problems, but ultimately like, yeah, that's like who I think God more or less is. There are a whole lot of questions about what God is like or what God does or doesn't do that I feel like are pretty above my pay grade. But ultimately, like I said earlier, when I am feeling confident in my belief, it is that the Isaiah image of God's holy mountain where all things are made right, where the trampled on, you know, slaves of this world, the the, the billions of people who have had a much worse lot in life than I have had, that that their experience is kind of taken into account as fully as my experience. And that's not that doesn't happen now. That's not fucking happening right now. So that must happen in some future state or non-temporal state or something, again, beyond my pay grade. But when I say I believe, I'm saying, yeah, I'm sort of staking my life on that that's real. And I, of course I could be wrong. Doubt is there all the time. And if I'm wrong, then I will die and I will not know that I was wrong and I won't be bummed about it. And I'm I'm becoming more accepting of that possibility or some days feels like a probability. Uh, but that's what I mean when I say I believe in God. So can you respond to that and compare contrast yourself in that language? It's a good question. When I say I do not believe in God, I mean that I am withholding belief from a conscious deity about whom there are a myriad of claims that he is a trinity, three in one, that Jesus is the son of God, crucified, resurrected on the third day, born of a virgin, and that this God interacts with our world in a meaningful way. And this God is especially found in the historical claims of Christianity, kind of now and through history. But I'm open to the existence of a God— even that God. So I'm, I'm agnostic. I, what I share with you, I think, is the religious aspect, the spiritual practice, the guiding myth that uh, provides meaning for one's life. I, I, I think you might be a f- just a few feet further than me in terms of what you are maybe willing to accept or entertain. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. And by the way, and I always feel the need to say this whenever I discuss this kind of stuff, is I don't think that theism makes anyone stupid or evil, (laughs) right? And and that's so important to say because there is a certain breed of online atheist who really goes for the character of anyone who does. And I'm not that way at all. I mean, I I think that— And a certain breed of online Christian that that plays the other role. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, I have no interest in that. Some of the smartest, wisest, and kindest people I know are Christians and and theistic, creed-believing Christians, right? So mm-hmm. to the extent that I experience God, and I think that the word God is still helpful in some ways, it is at the awe of the universe, mm-hmm. the awe of consciousness. Yeah. And... For, I think for me, the experience—so so when I say I don't believe in God, I, I mean a God of—with volition, with a mind that interacts with the world, that that speaks individually to people, that has a plan for the world, who is a trinity, all of that stuff, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. But then there's another way in which one could use the word God as, you know, a Paul Talikian ground of being sense or, yeah. and I really don't have an argument with that. I really don't have a problem with, with those notions of God. I think that it can sometimes be semantically confusing, but I ultimately don't have a problem with it. And to the extent that I experience God, it is all at the natural order. It is all at, at the just fundamental mystery of existence and that there's real, there's something truly miraculous and mysterious about that. And I think that that is as far as my experience of God can go, at least right now. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I share, I, I do have a similar kind of skepticism toward my own experience. I th- I just want to parse a little bit there and, and say, I think I believe in like a Tillich type God, but I, I like it when Phil Clayton, the theologian says that, you know, if you want to go the route of kind of the fine tuning of the universe, which I currently believe is a pretty solid route for a theist to take, then you then you yeah. do want to say that God is like at least a mind, at least mind like, mm-hmm. and again that's just putting human language on it in an in an incomplete way. But if you think of the constants of the universe necessary for the congealing of matter and therefore the arrival of consciousness and and any sort of life forms, you can think of it in human terms as an engineering problem. Essentially, you you, you got to get the levers right. And it would take a, a kind of a mind, at least. Now, obviously, that's a, the poorest description of whatever God would be like possible. But like you, you mentioned panentheism and panpsychism and pantheism. So I, I'm probably at this point in my life a panentheist, mm-hmm. and and so my sense of God's interaction with the world is not really a God of. I don't really believe in a God of intervention. Again, these are human words that we're trying to like, I don't think that God could warn the hundred thousand farmers of the impending tsunami and just doesn't. I just think like God can't do that. Apparently like when, when we come up against these kind of problem of suffering, problem of evil, even the problem of divine hiddenness, people who want to experience God the way that their friends do, but they don't, I guess I, I guess I'm with Tom where I think God, must not have those powers because God would sure want to do it. Uh, And maybe that's because of some preconditions of having a universe that are beyond my pay grade. Like I, I've become a lot less interested in a lot of those questions because I feel like they're unresolvable, but I recognize the value in having a internally consistent theology so that you're, you don't just like, that's also a good check 
on on human error and stuff like that. So it it gets real it gets real messy, especially having started this as effectively a theology podcast (laughs) at the beginning and and just finding the psychological questions so much more interesting in part because they're so much more answerable and there's so much more for me to dig my fingers into, you know, and uh, dig my teeth into. So anyway, like the creeds, like I'm probably not a creedal Christian. I I mean, most creedal Christians would not think I'm one. I don't believe in the virgin birth, except it's like, that's some sort of beautiful poetry for describing something about, Jesus. Sure. Yeah. Even resurrection. I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how to think of it. I, I, I definitely believe that early Christians had resurrection experiences and you, like you're describing your, your prayer and tongues experiences. I, I would imagine they're similar. They were real experiences that led to the founding of Christianity. And that thing that it led to yes. the founding of is this absolutely flawed, but beautiful thing in, in which I, I'm, make my life. And yeah, so that to me has been kind of the most interesting autobiographical lens over the years is like, which questions are interesting to me and which ones are starting to feel like, well, I don't know. I don't fucking know. You don't know. Nobody knows that one. Yeah. But I also, I want to just say, I want to say really quickly, I even like, I have friends who are Roman Catholic who say, you know, who have said like, dude, like, I'm just going to like, outsource this to the church and have like a plug and play option for my family and I. And I think that that is 100% defensible and probably even wise. I have my issues with the Catholic church. If I were Catholic, I would be this dissenting liberal Jesuit kind of guy. You know, that's the kind that I would be with my personality type. But I recognize that, that that's not everybody. And so I don't want to over problematize you know, kind of more Orthodox Christians than myself. I think it's perfectly reasonable. Um, but I'm just speaking from my own plausibility structures and, and all of that thing. Yeah, I think that's that's all entirely fair. And I think your example of the fine-tuning is a good one because I agree that the fine-tuning of the universe is extraordinary. And I think it's pretty obvious that there's something there that could be described as fine-tuning, absolutely. And the fact that that exists is incomprehensible to me. The fact that that exists is is a profound mystery. And I think for me, that that's kind of the beginning and the end of it. Mm-hmm. I apprehend the mystery of it. And I'm not saying that, that it isn't for you as well. It, it sounds like it is. I don't have a, a next step after that. I don't have any narrative that that could be an answer to that. And really the only narrative I have is, is just the awe at the mystery. I mean, it, and, um, well, let me tell you how mine connects. And I wonder if your satanic practice connects in a similar way or if it is dissimilar. So the way that I would connect it is this, it's, it's a kind of a weird bastardized Pascal's wager, it's not about so Pascal's wager for those who don't know is like uh, Blaise Pascal, brilliant scholastic theologian, mathematician, polymath. He said like, look, if the if the Christian story is correct or it's incorrect, and if you follow it or you don't follow it, you can make like a two by two quadrant. And so if it's correct and you follow it, you get heaven. If it's correct and you don't follow it, you get hell. If it's incorrect and you do or don't follow it 
the consequences are not nearly as important as the consequences of, of if it's true. So you should just be a Christian, essentially hedge your bets. Now, of course, the big problem with Pascal's wager is like, that doesn't sound like fucking faith. That sounds like hedging your, that sounds like shorting the real estate market or some shit. It also only makes sense when Christianity is the only religion. Exactly. In when the that's game the only, when that, well. when that felt like a binary, that felt like a reasonable binary yeah. to people of his era. Doesn't seem true to us yeah. anymore. But there is a kind of a Pascal's wager that I think I do live with, which is like, how much am I? It's actually more a matter of degrees of like, am I going to lean into this Christianity or not? And in that sense, where I end up is like, I am going to lean in. Now, I recognize I probably would never become a martyr. <laughs> I don't think I have enough confidence to literally allow my life to end just for like a theological claim. Now, if it was like abandon your family and renounce Christ and you'll live, I'd probably be like, you kill me. I'm not going to abandon my family, but that's not really about now. I guess in a way that is about renouncing Christ. This is where it's problematic. But the point being the connection is this. When I think of the fine tuning of the universe, I think, ah, well, there's like one, there's a really plausible piece of evidence that this whole thing of which I am a very tiny part and I am in awe at the, the magnitude of it and the mystery of it, that it has a, that it has a basically a narrative structure to it, that there is a real purpose here. And if all the evidence, if all the astrological and cosmological evidence and all that pointed me away from that, I would probably feel like, okay, this is just humans doing some meaning making, which we, which we definitely do. And I do believe we do that, but it would, it would feel more reducible to that. The fine tuning stuff allows me to go, huh, maybe like it's probably, it's obviously not fundamentalist Christianity. That's true. And it might not even be Christianity. That's more true than other religions. But this idea that I get in Jesus, I get it in the other mystics, I get some version of it in my own experience, and I get this kind of order and and something going on with the universe. To me, it's like, why not lean into that? Because the Pascal wager comes in there. Like, what am I going to lose if I lean into that? If I try and be more like Father Greg Boyle at Homeboy Industries, if I try and be more like Richard Rohr or whomever, like... I'm not really losing anything. If I, if I lean away from it, what am I probably leaning toward? Something more like consumerism, something more like my low grade egomaniacal narcissism. Probably it's, it's away from these things that are going to be good for me, for my children, for my family, for my communities. And so with all the necessary caveats about not giving any religious institution too much power, and as a spiritual abuse researcher, I, I, I feel like I got a fairly good handle on what power not to give them. Like, yeah, I'm going to lean in. And that's how the universe fine tuning stuff connects in, in that way. It's like a, a very weak Pascal's wager sort of a thing. Does any of that mm, resonate for you or, or how's it different? That's really interesting. Yeah. So I, several years ago, I wrote an article called Satan in the Void and in that piece, I was exploring, I was experimenting with this idea of the void being the just kind of the irreducible mystery of the cosmos, which is terrifying. And 
there is a religious experience, there is a mystical experience in confronting the void, in looking at the fine-tuning, for example. And, and what I see in the fine-tuning is a mystery about which I have no answers. I, I feel like that is too big for me to, to really grasp. There's almost like a, a Lovecraftian inability to comprehend the, the universe, and, and that's terrifying, and it is profoundly humbling. So Satanism is a symbolic system that's really just kind of a Virgil. It's a guide hmm. for me to navigate this world, and it makes the toleration of the void, the mystery bearable, and a religious experience. And But the point is not Satan, ultimately. The point is kind of full confrontation with that irreducible mystery. And so I experience the something like the fine-tuning problem as kind of a Zen koan. This, for those who don't know a Zen koan, there, there are these little poems, these little sayings from Zen that are utterly contradictory. And through meditating on them, people attain enlightenment. And so, for example, one is, I, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but you're standing on a bridge over a river. The river is still and the bridge is flowing. Completely contradictory. Or what is the sound of one hand clapping? Or when yeah. you see the Buddha on a road, kill him. These these absolutely and the and the mystery of the koans is irreducible. Right. Yeah, the, they're they're the meant to kind, kind of, of wake you up. Right. And so I experience stuff like the fine tuning, just the, or consciousness, the hard problem of con what David Chalmers calls the hard problem of consciousness. I experience these things as real life koans. Mm. that are irreducibly mysterious and the that fact is almost unbearable and there's a sort of religious awe you know i i you know there are the passages in the old testament of just the glory of god being so yeah. intense and so huge and so horrifying that yeah. that people are are just brought to their knees that's kind of what it's like mm. satanism is a symbolic satanism does not Tell me what is ultimately true about this universe. Satanism is a symbolic structure that helps me live my life within community. I am, it is the religious community that I find myself in. It's the community that I serve. And it's a, it's a symbol that helps me orient my life. But what it does is it kind of helps me address the deeper issues. It helps what I believe about the world. What do I believe? I think I'm some kind of combination of a secular humanist and a some kind of secular Buddhist. I think when it really comes down to what do I believe about man and the universe, it comes down to that. Satanism is just the way for me to live that out. Satanism mm. is just the the community that I find myself in that helps me embody that. So to me, it, it really is the, there's not, I, I don't, I don't think I have the, the structure to um, see div, some, some kind of divinity 
in the in the or or lean or not not necessarily see some kind of divinity, but to lean in to some kind of divinity when it comes to fine tuning. I I think there's just so I don't have either that 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 structure in in my brain that allows me to do that. So for me, it it's just it's irreducible mystery. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, where I uh, where I'm with you is, and and as my my uh, therapeutic orientation is cognitive existential, and I really mm. value the big existential questions, the pain and uncertainty that comes with grappling with them. I don't think everybody grapples with them in a profoundly conscious way at some point in their life, but a, but a lot of adults, maybe most adults do. And I love getting to be a part of that in the therapy room with people. It is, I don't know, it's one of the great joys of my life when I get to do that work with people. Where I think it's different is I, I think that there are some claims about the universe that come from within the Christian tradition that I think probably line up with reality. And what I hear you say is Satanism is not giving you claims about the universe. It is giving you the symbolic and ethical framework to orient your life. I think what a lot of Christians do is they lean too hard into those truth claims and try and exempt themselves from the existential questions. But I think Kierkegaard's right that like to look at the story of Abraham and Isaac and to say, Oh, he just had faith because he knew God would not allow it to happen. It's an uncomplicated story. Kierkegaard's like, hell no, it is a complicated story. It is absurd. And Isaiah would have had to sort of go out, you know, and I, I don't, you know, I don't think that that story like happened historically, but I'm, but the story of like faith, faith really should cost something. Faith is like choosing, like the purest form of faith is choosing the religious life in the face of it potentially being bullshit in the face of those existential questions that like, I don't believe, put it this way. I believe there are individual people whose, whose faith never takes them there. They don't ever really grapple. They are able to bypass those questions with their religion. And some of those people can be very loving and good people. For my money, there are no great spiritual leaders in human history that didn't go through the existential questions. Like you, you can't be great without having done that. Um, maybe like saying you shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame if you didn't win a Super Bowl or something like that. Like you, you yeah. got to go through the fire in that sense. And so people will lean, in my estimation, too heavily on those truth claims. And I'm trying not to, but unlike you, I do see connective tissue. And I think Jesus saw connective. Obviously, he didn't know about Christianity exactly. But like, you know, even just as a practicing Jew, like he would have he would have put those questions into Jewish form as he answered them for himself and his disciples, even as he was reforming Judaism or however you want to think about what Jesus thought he was doing, probably something like that. So that's the difference. And that's interesting. That's an interesting yeah. difference. I. I think so. I think so. I think so. Yeah. The, you know, Kierkegaard talks about the knights of faith of, of whom there are, you know, small handful. They're basically bodhisattvas of existential Christianity. Yes, ba- yeah. Basically the bodhisattvas. And so someone like Abraham who was a, who is, who is able in that story, in that myth to see the experience, the command of God of, 
sacrifice your son, and through that son, you will be the father of nations, and yeah. you just have to somehow obey in the midst of that. And that's so a you Zen have, Cohen right there. That's a Zen Cohen right there, and mm. the. And so the 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 great Christians being the people who somehow persist in the faith, in the religion, despite those incomprehensible challenges. And I and I and maybe this is where my Satanism is kind of does kind of fundamentally inform me, which is which would be like, then why believe it? Why in the face of that is agnosticism not the correct answer? And that's kind of the thing that I fall back on is why – so if if I were in – so let's take Abraham's situation. Why isn't agnosticism reasonable? And I think that might be the fundamental difference. Yeah. Um, oh, it's totally reasonable. I mean I, I functionally yeah. am agnostic on, I don't know, two-thirds of what most Christians think they know about God. You know, or, I mean it's a lot. Sure. The list yeah. of confident items in my in my own creed is short. So probably there's not even all that much disagreement around that question. It's more just like Absolutely, practically, yeah. as I am orienting my life, do I connect it back to this Christian tradition while how, also how we relate the, to it? Yeah. It's more it's more Absolutely. about that. Yeah. And I think that there's a real practical value there. And I mean, what you were saying earlier, like it, the, the positives of that is that it, it, um, or the, for you, the alternatives to that is your own narcissism, your own kind of, you know, behavior that, that would not help your community or your kids. And, and I, I think that this actually gets to the real challenge and this is the challenge that I face, which is how do we live a good life without, these orienting traditions. That's the challenge. And that's the, that's the real challenge of secularism. And I do not think that the modern atheist movement has really apprehended the depth of that challenge. It's real. And I think people should take it seriously. And it's one that I, that I struggle with and I'm still figuring out how to square that circle. Yeah. We, we're going to end here, but I'll just say, and maybe we'll talk about this some other time. I think that there's a real um, lack of moral imagination in these groups that are comprised exclusively of conservatives or exclusively of liberals. And agreed. So then there's like a choir preaching and a, and a, and really a non-acknowledgement of the kind of things that morally motivate people uh, with different temperaments in, in different cultures. So that's in, in part of it, but. Anyway, we don't need to go down a Jonathan Haidt rabbit hole here. Uh, Steven, <laughs> this was a total delight. I'm so glad you came on. Thanks so much for, for going long with me and and talking through this stuff. It has been an absolute pleasure. I would love to do it again. Maybe you can come on to Sacred Tension. I, I'd love to, man. Anytime. Awesome.